Today we're in the second week of our Free Indeed series. Our theme verse for this series is found in John chapter 8. We're going to jump right into the text. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now Jesus is telling people who had believed in him that they need to go through a process of truth-knowing in order to be free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Modern day translation would be, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm on my way to heaven. I don't have anything to worry about. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You know, what happened is, is when you became a Christian, you gave up some things, and those things have never returned. You don't do those things anymore. And most of us, though, there is still that one thing. There's that one thing that still cracks the whip at us. There's that one thing that still calls to us, that one area that still wants to gain mastery over our lives, and we struggle with it. Or maybe you don't struggle with it. Maybe you've just surrendered to it. Maybe you've given up fighting and you've decided to just become comfortable with it. And so you have settled for less than what God wants for you. But there's a problem with settling. Jesus says, now a slave has no permanent place in the family. When you settle, you miss out on all that God has for his children. And the problem is, is you may be comfortable with your one thing. You may be comfortable with your sin, but God isn't. Your sin matters to God. No matter how comfortable, no matter how indifferent you are to it, it matters to God and it affects your relationship with him. It robs you of your full potential. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. God has so much in store for you and it grieves him when you choose to settle for sinfulness rather than pursuing all that he has for you. That's why Jesus says that a son, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be, say it with me, free indeed. Last week we made the case that you have a war going on inside of you, a war between the carnal, fleshly, physical part of you. Your body's appetites, emotions, desires, your self-will, the part of us that wants to go in a different direction than God wants us to go. And then you've got one hand on the flesh, and then once you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, because you're created in the image and likeness of God, because you, you are spiritually reborn, now you have a spiritual side to your life. And there is a war that is raging between your flesh and your spirit. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And last week we talked about the importance of prayer and fasting as spiritual disciplines in the spiritual war for how you're going to live your life. And the idea is is that we connect with God through prayer and we disconnect from the world through fasting. And therefore, we nourish our spirit, we neglect our flesh, 
and the Spirit begins to win the war. And last week I gave you six steps, six verses to to help you engage uh, in this battle. Now in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul lays out the struggle for us. He says, I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. And we could stop here and just shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, even Paul struggled, so what's the use? But it's extremely important that we don't stop with this verse. This is only chapter 7 in the book of Romans. We're only halfway into Romans. Paul doesn't stop here. Paul doesn't settle for this struggle that he's defined. No, he finds a way out of that kind of life. Don't settle for less than what God has for you. Because here's the problem. Here's the problem when you settle. Look what happens. First, your sin becomes a part of your identity. Your sin becomes a part of your identity. That's just who I am. I can't change it. I'm a smoker. I'm an alcoholic. I'm overweight. I'm I'm a loser. I'm just an angry person who gets mad easily. I'm just a... And you can fill in the blank with whatever your one thing is. Your sin becomes your identity. But that is not who you are. That's just who the enemy and your flesh want you to believe that you are. But if you buy into the idea that your sin is your identity, you feel increasingly hopeless. It's just the way I am. There's no hope. And some of you came into the service tonight with just a feeling of hopelessness. You didn't even try. You didn't even try to do the prayer and fasting thing last week because there's no way it's going to work for me. There's just no hope. You're hopeless or just apathetic about your sin. There's nothing that can be done. Next step is you become defensive. Somebody says, hey, you really ought to try. Whoa, 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 whoa. Honey, I think you really ought. No, 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 no. And the walls just go up. And you defend the very thing that is your problem. You deny that it's even a real problem and become defensive. And the next step in the spiral down is, is then you become a slave to it. You know, you think, oh, I'm free now to experience this. I'm free to do my one thing. But instead of you being free, your one thing enslaves you. And now it's cracking the whip. It's telling you how to live. It is controlling your life. And you begin to serve your sin more than you serve your Savior. And the fifth step is you begin to lose your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you die physically, although you might. But you begin to lose the quality of your life here and now. Your one thing weakens your relationships. Your your addiction affects your ability to serve and minister. It, It keeps you from storing up rewards in heaven. It robs you of your life. Why? Because the world, your flesh, and the devil are enemies of God. And when you become a believer in Jesus Christ... There's nothing. They can't keep you out of heaven. They can't keep you out of heaven, so they settle for the next most destructive thing in the life of a believer. They just want to rob you of your effectiveness down here. Because when they rob you of your effectiveness down here, they rob you of your rewards in heaven, which ultimately cheats God out of his glory. That's what happens. 
See, this isn't even about you. You are just a pawn in the devil's scheme to hurt, cheat, and diminish God. And he can't do that directly to God, and so he attacks you. He diminishes your life, and that diminishes God's glory. That's why your sin matters to God. That's why it should matter to you. And so my goal today is to just lay out for you how you can reverse this process. Jesus says that we need to counter the lies that say that we have to live like this. We need to counter the lie that it's okay for us to settle for living like this. We need to counter that with truth. Because it's not true. We've got to reprogram our thoughts, renew our minds to bring them in line with God's truth. Otherwise, we're just going to continue this spiral down and the devil's going to rob us of our rewards and cheat God out of his glory. So let me just lay this, this first truth on you, and, and it's a heavy one. The first truth is there really are demons. There really are demons. You know, researchers tell us six out of ten Christians think the devil is a mythical character. They think he's a literary device. He's not real. You know, if I were the devil, that's what I would want you to think too. You know, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Because if you don't think he exists, you won't resist. Jesus says the devil is a thief, a deceiver, and a liar. And when a thief steals from you, does he want you to know what he's doing? I mean, does a pickpocket announce his intentions? Does a car thief knock on the door and say, hey, I'm stealing your car? No. No, a thief acts in secret. He tries to go undetected so he can continue to steal. That's why the Bible warns us, be self-controlled, deal with your flesh. Be self-controlled and alert. Wake up! Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You can't just kumbaya your way through life, especially holding on to your one thing your sin. You've got to wake up and realize you are under attack. Don't let the devil lull you to sleep in your sin. Resist him. Standing firm, say it with me, in the flesh. That's where the battle is fought. Now people doubt that there are demons, but everybody likes angels. You know, even lost people talk about angels. You know, lost people. I mean, you go to a funeral for a lost person, and they're all, oh, Grandma is singing with the angels. I mean, everybody's fine with angels. But Jesus says there really are demons. Now, you've got to be careful, because you can go a little crazy with this stuff. I mean, you, you can see a demon behind every wobbly wheel on the shopping cart at Walmart. Ooh, my cart's demon-possessed. No, you know. C.S. Lewis said, said it best. He said, Satan hails the skeptic and the superstitious alike. I mean, you can become superstitious about this. Oh, I ran out of gas. There's a demon in my gas tank. No, you just forgot to put gas in when you're supposed to put gas in. You know, don't get all superstitious about this stuff. But don't be a skeptic either. Oh, I don't think I believe in demons. Well, that doesn't make them not real. Jesus says there really are demons. And the second truth you need to know is, is that we can be under their influence. We can be under their influence. Pastor, are you saying that a believer can be demon-possessed? No, I am not. Because possession indicates ownership. And a believer in Jesus Christ is not going to be owned by a demon. 
that doesn't mean they can't have influence in your life. You know, if someone breaks into your house and steals your stuff, they don't own your house. They don't even own your stuff, but they certainly have influence over it. And if you drink a bunch of alcohol or take drugs, or, or, you know, do, they don't own your body, but they certainly have a lot of influence over it. And the same is true with whatever area you struggle with, whether it's pride or jealousy or gluttony or sloth or gossip, lust, anger, whatever it is. Ephesians 4, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, don't give up hope. Don't become content with it. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now that letter was written to Christians. And Paul says, don't leave the door open. Don't crack the window. Don't leave a way for the devil to get in and get a foothold. And the word foothold there is the word for place. Don't give the devil a place in your life. And when you tolerate sin in your life, when you click on that porn site, when you open your mouth to gossip, when you eat that extra helping, when you, whatever your area of struggle is, you have just made a place in your life for the devil. When you continue to settle, to tolerate that one thing, that one area of sin, you set a place at the table and invite the devil in. You have opened yourself up to his influence. And God tells you you need to stop it. Whatever your harmful, sinful behavior is, whatever you're involved in, God calls you to stop it. In this passage, he says, who, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. And you can just take that and pull out stealing and plug in whatever your one thing is. But whatever it is, God says you need to stop it. Because it's giving the devil a foothold in your life, a place in your life. At least the third truth. Demons have to flee in Jesus' name. Yes, demons exist. Yes, they can influence you, even if you're a Christian, but they have to flee in Jesus' name. Luke chapter 10, powerful, powerful passage. It says, the 72 returned. Let me just fill you in. Jesus had sent out a bunch of people, not just the disciples. He'd sent out 72 people who believed in him, and he sent them out to cast out demons and to heal people miraculously. And so these 72 people went out, and then they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. I mean, they are so amazed at the power that they had to the extent that even the demons had to believe them. They had to obey them. And they're thinking, Man, this is the greatest thing ever. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And Jesus is talking about the moment when Satan was cast out of heaven and cast down to earth. Satan, is known as Lucifer then, used to be the chief angel leading worship in heaven. But he decided that he didn't want to be the worship leader. He wanted to be the one that was worshipped. And so he led about a third of the angels in heaven in a rebellion against God. He tried to usurp God's power. He tried to set himself up on God's throne. And so God cast Satan and his angels, turned demons, down to earth. And Jesus says, I, I was standing there watching it when, he, when it happened. And you know how long it took God to throw Satan out of heaven? That's how long. 
I mean, we need to understand that these are not two superpowers in heaven duking it out. God on one side, the devil on the other, and they're going at it. And God wins for a while, and the devil wins one every now and then. That is not what is happening. Not what is happening at all. Satan is a created being, created by God. He was cast out of heaven by God. Christ defeated Satan on the cross. And now we're just watching Satan's defeat play out till the end. That's why Jesus says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. Those are images of demons. That, that is figures of speech. And to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, it's, it's about heaven. It's not about what happens here, even when, when the demons obey us. I mean, fighting demons is one thing, but having your name written down in heaven, being able to participate in God's glory, I mean, that, that's the power thing, powerful thing. You say, oh, well, that's all well and good, Pastor, but it just sounds like a bunch of preaching to me because I'm still messed up. I am still battling with my sin, with my addictions, with my one thing. And if I got all that authority, why am I still struggling? Good question. That's what I want to talk to you about in the last part of this message. Because the truth will set you free. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We don't fight with guns and bombs and stuff. We fight with the, on the spiritual level. But I, I just need to ask you, are you fighting on the spiritual level? Are you engaged in the spiritual war for how you're going to live your life? Or have you just given up? A lot of people give up because they would rather live with their addiction, they would rather live with their one thing than live for the glory of God. You know, there comes a point where you have to decide which you love more, your addiction, your sin, your one thing, or God. Do you love your pleasure more than God's glory? You've got to decide whose side you're on. And prayer is not just about communing with God. Prayer is also about confronting your enemy. And the Bible assumes that we are engaged in spiritual warfare with prayer and fasting. We're connecting with God. We're disconnecting with the world in order to gain the victory. But I'm afraid too many of us have just surrendered. We've surrendered to our addictions. We've surrendered to the one thing that holds us back. And that makes the devil happy. And it diminishes God's glory. That's why God calls us to fight back. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And stronghold is a crucial word there. Your area of struggle is called a stronghold in the Bible because it has a stronghold on you. You know, when you got saved, 90% of your struggles went away. And there are lots of things that you don't do as a believer that you used to do when you were driven by your flesh. But most people still have that one thing that you just can't shake. That's your stronghold. The word stronghold in Greek, it carries this idea. This is fascinating. You get this, it'll change things for you. 
It carries the idea, a stronghold, of a prisoner locked by deception. How does the devil keep you bound up in the prison of your stronghold? Does he hold you in there by supernatural force, stronger than the force of the cross and the resurrection in Christ? No. Does he coerce you or strong-arm you? No. He just lies to you. Satan's greatest weapon, in fact, really his only weapon, is to lie to you. He lied to Adam and Eve, he's still lying to you. And the moment you believe his lie, he gains influence over you, he gains a place, and you wind up a slave to your sin, even though you're a believer. Second part of that term stronghold is, is living by something that is not true. A stronghold is a deception. It is a, a lie in your life. Jesus says the devil, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And many believers get caught up in the prison of his lies. That's why we go, go back, 2 Corinthians 10. We demolish arguments. And every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Where's the knowledge of God? Well, the knowledge of God is in your Bible. It's here in the church. It's in your small group. It's where we hear God's truth instead of Satan's lies. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. Again, it's warfare terminology, but it's going on in the mind because the real battlefield is in the mind. We must replace the lies of the devil with the truth of Christ. And Jesus says when we do that, the truth will set us free. Now, this does not happen in an instant. It doesn't happen in a moment. It doesn't even happen in a 30-minute sermon. It is a process that happens over time. How does it happen? Well, look at Ephesians. It says, you were taught to put off your old self. I'm trying. I'm trying. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. I know. <laughs> I know. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. We defeat the enemy by replacing every lie he has told us with the truth of God's word. That's how it happens. I want to give you three starter truths that we all need if we're going to make this process happen. First, first truth is God loves me and is for me. God loves me and is for me. Now that's an important truth to understand because many of us grew up we spent our early years in mean churches full of mean people listening to mean preachers who were telling us we were all going to go to hell. And so you think God is a mean God who is mad at you. And that is not who God is. You know, God is thinking about you with a smile on his face. God knows what you did last night, and he still loves you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. Okay? You know, that's why we've got, we've got a picture in both lobbies. We've got a picture of the smiling Christ. You come in here, and, and we don't have an angry Christ that we worship. We've got a smiling. Remember one time I was standing out in the lobby talking to a guy. He'd come in, all kinds of problems, and we're standing out there, and we're talking, and all of a sudden he just stops the conversation and goes, and I'm like, what? And he goes, I've never seen him smile. That's a tragedy. 
Because God loves you. God is for you. John 3.16, I use the message here because I want you to hear this fresh today. It says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son. I mean, think about that. God gave his one and only son for you. Nobody loves you that much. Nobody. I mean, I love you. I mean, I do. I mean, seriously. I mean, if thinking about you and praying for you is a sign of somebody loving you, you know, I'm thinking of you people all the time. I'm praying for you all the time. But if for us to be together, I have to kill one of my sons, it's not going to work. God did it. I mean, who loves you that much? God does. And this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. No, he came to help. He came to help. God loves you. God is for you. And you've got to believe that. Second thing, second truth, I can be free. And yet some of you, too many of you, have given up. So I just, I just want to say those four words out loud together. I can be free. Let's say that together. I can be free. One more time, harder, stronger, louder. I can be free. You need to believe that. I mean, Romans 7 describes the struggle, but don't get stuck in Romans 7. Look what Romans 8 says. This is crucial. This is hope. You no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Whoa! I can be free. Not only that, here's the third truth. I can be restored. Not only can God take your stronghold away, but he turns you into something powerful. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. God doesn't just forgive, he restores. And if you take the lies of Satan and believe them, it'll destroy you and it will diminish God's glory. If you take the truth of God and believe it, it will restore you and it will magnify God's glory. You know, in the Christ in me song, let my story lift you high. That's what happens when you let God free you and restore you and redeem you and lift you up. Again, it's not about you. It's about his glory. But it begins with a fully surrendered life to Jesus Christ. I mean, it's not just about being a Christian that's headed to heaven. The question is, are you fully surrendered? Do you really believe Christ in me. Does God have your all? Do you love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength? Or do you love your sin more? Do you love your addiction more than you love God? Do you, do you love your one thing 
more than you love your Savior. I mean, if there's even one area where you're holding back, one area where you're believing a lie, one area where you are deceived and without hope, you've given the devil a foothold. And you're robbing God of his glory, and it's cheating you out of the best life you could have. Let's pray together. quietness of this moment, I want to just invite you just, just to make that decision. And just decide, who am I going to love more? Am I going to love my sin more? Am I going to love my flesh? Or am I going to love my God? Am I going to surrender my life to him? Am I going to surrender and give it up? Tonight, as you make that decision, I'm going to invite you just, just to, to act on that decision. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you come up to the front here. But I want to invite you just to put up, put up both your hands. You know, sometimes I have you raise your hand. Just put up both your hands. I mean, I surrender. I give up, God. I surrender to you. God, forgive me. Free me. Help me. Restore me. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.